you're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 network. You're listening to episode 348 and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Nick is back again to do another catch-up episode as we start to see the end in sight for this weird, weird year. So Nick, what is new? Hey, Brittany. Well, uh, Chef got acquired. That's what's new. Insane. Um, <laughs> so just to recap, it's like if, if, if this was a TV show, the beginning would be last time we saw Nick, I was getting hired at the beginning of a pandemic by a name brand tech company, you know, that like people would have heard of. And I was like, oh, it's great. You know, it's a pandemic. But at the last day of the office, I, I was hired. And uh, the ninth, well, it's, you know, sometimes acquisitions are like years long. But for us, it was, we got the heads up on the 9th of September. Um, it went through formally like the 3rd or 4th of October. Um, but then, you know, it's still been been quite a state of flux uh, ever since. Um and yeah, it's just wild because like you think this year's had a lot of disruptions for people generally, like if you didn't start a new job or if you weren't at a new place, you know, just COVID alone. I think everybody has a lot to try and figure out, but definitely I've never, not only have I never been with a company that I, there is equity offerings before, I've never been acquired in my entire life. I don't know if that's a super common thing to happen unless you're like some venture capitalist, but it's it's been a wild ride. I imagine so. I mean, I, you know, I spent those two years in San Francisco. And so I did see some developer friends go through acquisitions. But to be honest, like, there's really not a part of a boot camp or part of like your university training that's like, this is how to deal with equity. And so we touched upon this in the episode I recorded with Aaron Kahn, um, episode 343 about finance for developers. But I mean, really, it's, it's complicated stuff about whether or not you want to buy that stock, whether or not it's financially advantageous for you and it's also got to be weird to be celebrating with a team remotely yeah exactly so it's a it's an interesting situation i guess i could share i I think it'd be fun on this podcast to kind of share a couple learnings and thoughts like obviously i can't pull out a contract and like share numbers and details with like people but i think i've got a few learnings that, that 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 i might share with our listeners really quick if that's okay absolutely please do So I think first off, you know, you hear a lot of different terms. And I think um, the number one one is things can be a lot clearer if you're working for, say, a publicly traded company. So they might now this may I didn't catch that episode. So I may be covering a lot of what uh, you talked about very recently. But, um, you know, if you get, say, RSUs, which is just one, the way I like to call it is just, you know, annual or quarterly or monthly or whatever, uh, vesting stock in a publicly traded company and you just given the stock, that's just yours, right? Like you have shares, you can sell them, you can do whatever you want. They are your property and it's very straightforward and you can actually almost budget around it, right? If you know what the share price is and you know after a couple of years with the company every few months or year, that's great. But I see a lot of engineers you know, looking at companies and they actually look at like the options, um, you know, as if they were on par with the salary, right? Or as if they're a big part of the deal and they say, well, you know, I've got 
it doesn't even matter the number because they're not publicly traded, right? I've got one share, I've got 100 shares, I've got 1,000 options, I've got 100,000 options, you know, um, but you don't have actually the insight that a publicly traded company would have. So really, those are lottery tickets. I think that the big thing I've learned, um, you know, without going into details about how the chef deal went down is that's a great thing. I think it's wonderful. They offer that as an incentive. But I think psychologically, you really should put options very low on your deciding and in fact maybe not even factor them at all when you're deciding to pick a role because there's so many more important things like developer happiness uh you know the type of work you do uh, your salary of course is what you're actually paid that's that's what you do um but if you're say had two great roles for similar salaries um one was slightly better than the other and one was offering options i'd almost not allow the options to be the tiebreaker um because it's just something that you that you can't you know really count on i mean i think it's public knowledge that chef didn't get sold for like 100x in fact i think it is public with how much they went for is about three times uh annual recurring revenue but uh yeah so that's kind of just the big big learning there you know not positive or negative or anything but it's it's what i i kind of got sucked in when i first joined the company of like Hey, this is amazing. I've never had this as part of my contract before. Wow, look at these magical you know, pieces of paper. Um, also with acquisitions, uh, I think you have to kind of, and what I've done, I think it's been, been really healthy to do, is really prioritize time for yourself. Because, you know, if you've been through a reorg, just imagine like a reorg, but, you know, times a much larger scale, you're going to lose top level leadership. Management might change a few times, roadmap might change a few times, but if you can keep just a daily amount of work in front of you and keep progressing forward and, and doing well, every, oh, the dust is going to settle, right? Like you're still a company, you still have products, you still have things that you need to achieve. Um, but, you know, don't let, don't think that the acquisition is going to, you know, just be a chaotic experience just because uh, a whole new employer is in place. Usually the people around you, if you're in engineering, are the same, which was the case for me mostly. Um, but uh, yeah, so anyway, that, that's kind of my thoughts. I had absolutely no uh, uh, prior experience or knowledge uh, with, with that component. And I think I really valued that side of it. And I think I've learned that really it's the job. And if you're caring about finances, the salary the, uh, that are the things you should care about. So. I agree with you. I think that equity in a lot of times is icing. So I've been through a lot of startups where I've been offered equity. And of course, I've been offered to buy out my options whenever I've left a company. And so I agree with you. You know, it's really great if you do buy your options and they end up working out. That's super exciting. But yes, you have to prioritize your salary, your benefits, the working conditions, whether or not you're going to be learning your team. I really do feel that a lot of that stuff comes up way higher because yes, you hear about developers who hit the lottery but i mean it is the lottery so like it's not for everyone it's not an assumed thing and so to bet you know some of the best years of your career on a company that doesn't ultimately pan out is just it's not great so i do believe that you need to believe in the product you need to believe that the company is going somewhere great but i i couldn't agree with you more now on the other side i'm so interested to know you know once chef announced that they were getting acquired how quickly did things change because I've worked at companies or I've had friends work at companies where it was status quo for several months until things were buttoned up. But it sounds like for you, Chef changed pretty rapidly. Yeah. So um, for, for us, we were actually, and I was impressed with this, normally 
There were there are folks I worked with who had like what six month, twelve month, eighteen month acquisitions or mergers, um, but from announcement to close, we were just under a month actually, which is super duper quick, right? Like uh, we had a you know product roadmap for the year and we were kind of putting it together and we didn't know you know obviously that this was coming down until it was announced. Which good job keeping that you know it must be hard to keep these things. Uh, uh, under the you know secret, you just need one leak, and then everyone's talking about it. So um, it happened pretty quick, and you know uh, I think that you know public knowledge. There's been a lot of what's the term attrition. Uh, so 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 a lot of the peers and, and managers and stuff definitely uh, changed very very quickly. Uh, so that that's something that you can't control though. And I think in engineering, as with life, you have to kind of partition everything you encounter into things that you have absolutely no control over things you have some, but not complete control over and things that you have complete control over. And I didn't have complete control over what was happening there. Right. Because with any acquisition, even if it's the best in the world, there will be people leaving on some figure and then uh, just instantly. And then there will be people who will choose to leave. Like let's say best case scenario, amazing company doesn't change at all, but let's say, 3% 3% of the people of the company were already thinking about making their move. And acquisition's a great time to do that, right? Because it's, all right, here's the time to make my move. And then the number can go up, you know, uh, depending on if the situation is advantageous or, or lucrative for some folks. You know, they, they may change their mind or say, hey, you know, I liked working with these people and they're gone. Yeah, so I think a lot of people take their work very personally and so when they go to leave it always feels good to have a good reason to leave and so you you concept there because for me when i left the trust you know the pandemic had happened things were slowing down we weren't putting on live shows anymore and you know i took my work at the trust very seriously and i was super excited about my new role at text us but i wanted uh, a safe reason to leave without like it being too personal, if that makes sense. So like that ultimately ended up working out well. That's that's a really, really good point. Having a safe reason to leave because, yeah, because some event or something like that will make it so it's uh, less harsh because I've left without the reason, right? For things. Right. And um, like here, you know, um, gosh, if you'd said to somebody and you're in the middle of an acquisition, if you said to someone, I can't make a meeting because I'm interviewing, like, it's not a great, okay. You know, like, it's not like some, because everybody's like, well, this is a period of great change and everyone's got their own personal reasons for, for staying or going or transitioning or whatever, right? So, gosh, that's that's not, I didn't look at it that way, but you, you are right. Like, there's there's times where you're leaving and you're interviewing and it's, it's like a secret op, <laughs> And then, it is. And yeah. then you see people who will blatantly tell you that, like throughout your entire time that you work with them, where they'll tell you, like, as soon as we're acquired, I'm out of here. Or as soon as the team size gets a certain size, I'm out of here. And like, in some ways, I kind of like that because then the expectations are set up because we are so lucky as developers that we really can move from job to job in order to find the things that we need and whether you know you care about company loyalty or really sometimes going down with the ship uh is up to you but i mean right now i mean the hiring market for tech talent is pretty great it does seem like everybody because tech is already set up could have been remote 100 percent from the beginning but now with covid it's like ultra super duper remote and yeah we are lucky like we're really spoiled like in it as an industry, aren't we? Where 
you know, I have peers uh, here who who don't work in tech, and they couldn't just say, "I'm going to work for this Berlin company now," you know, like or you know, just just oh, I don't oh, my job isn't very nice, and people are mean to me, so I'm going to leave and go work somewhere else. <laughs> like for so many people in the world, that's simply not an option. Um, so it, 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 I'm probably soft and spoiled <laughs> by now <laughs> that we all are, but. Um, but yeah, so speaking about that, uh, how, how are things going um, with with your work and your role and everything since we last spoke? Yeah, so I've actually had some changes as well. So we all know that I started out at Texas as the back-end engineering lead. And so I had a partner who was the front-end engineering lead, and he did a wonderful job on onboarding me pausing during meetings to make sure I understand what was going on, because there's just a lot of domain knowledge around a company that's been around since, you know, for many years, like Textus has. So about six weeks in, I would say, uh, he took a week vacation. And when he came back, I was really proud to tell him that, like, I was able to hold down the fort. And like, I really think I learned a lot while he was away. And he told me that it was great practice because he was actually leaving. And so <laughs> it was a, it was definitely a funny experience exchange I did not see it coming so it's I like to think Nick that it's it's hard to shock me nowadays but that was definitely pretty surprising <laughs> so, so it ultimately you know he went on to another role which I'm super excited for him he was at Textus for six years and he was extremely talented and he did a wonderful job of documentation and just making sure that the team was in a good place but ultimately I was left with um, an existing front-end developer and then we were in the middle of hiring a new one to replace another developer who had left. And so when the lead left, um, it was then my job to onboard that new developer onto the team. And then ever since, I've been watching over the front end team. And, you know, initially we were looking for a front end lead replacement right away. But ultimately, you know, we want to do a lot of work on our mobile apps. And so we ended up pivoting to locating a mobile developer to redo our mobile app. And so since then, I've been in charge of both the, the back end and the front end. And so I'd love to talk about what it's like to to manage people where I I really can't quite read their code, but um, how I can be helpful to them so that way I can keep them as productive as possible. Yes, I'd be very interested to hear that. And as well as juggling, you know, I'm sure you had a very full plate uh, with backend alone. And it's a domain that you'd probably feel very comfortable with. Uh, But also taking on that domain of front end. Yeah, I'd I'd love to hear... uh, how your experience has been and what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I'm really lucky in the fact that Textus has an architect who does a lot of the back-end architecture work. So, like, I, I have a partner in that respect. The front-end, it, it fell, the front-end architecture fell on the lead as well. And so I was able to easily take over the managerial duties and making sure that those two developers are working on the right thing. When they open pull requests, I do read the code, and what I do is I try to QA because I typically with our features, it starts in the back end and then moves to the front end. So I'm pretty fluent as to what happened in the back end. And so knowing that I can help guide them in that sense. But also, you know, we have a UX designer who wants to make a lot of changes on the front end. But then of course, we also have features that we need to get out. And so in some ways, acting as that, you know, lead, not PM per se, but just making sure that their priorities are clear. And in some ways, I think the most useful thing that I can do is time box how far they go on a feature that 
might have ended up being a lot more difficult than it really should have been. And like, where where are they seeing difficulties on the front end in implementation? And is it something that we can do in the back end to make it easier for them? Oh, that's great. And uh, is it, um, do you, I don't know if you're allowed to talk about your stack at all. Um, it's okay if you can't. So, so is it, are there elements of the front end that, you know, may not have been your daily forte, but you're familiar with, or is it some really, you know, new for you kind of stuff or, or, you know, what's it look like? Yeah, 1000% is entirely new to me because at the trust, we were using jQuery and Haml. And so a lot of times when I was building out features for the back end, would often create the Haml templates so that the front end developer could then fill it in with the actual knowledge that was needed. But I often wanted to see that my instance variables were rendering correctly. And so with Textus, we have one, basically one ERB template with some partials that are loaded in. And that, that ERB template loads in the front end which is entirely a React application. And so as soon as we cross into that territory, I know nothing. So, you know, there are times where they will mention things like React hooks and I'll pull one aside and be like, hey, are we using React hooks just so I know? Like, <laughs> so um, it's helpful in that sense. But what I enjoy the most is the interaction between the two of them because they do debate in pull requests. We're very vocal in our pull requests. And just doing that, I learn a ton as to like what's going on on the front end. And it helps that, you know, we document things so heavily. Oh, that's so cool. And it's, it's an area that I've not had the chance to work in. It's, it's a very prevalent approach at the moment. Um, but I'm very interested in it. Would you would you talk to the front end via like REST or GraphQL? Or I don't really know if I'm even asking the right questions here because I've never set up React in a front end. Yeah, absolutely. So the back end controls all of the logic of the application. So, you know, even things like, and I've never seen this before, but like we print out like a lot of menus onto the page. And in this case, like the back end gives that menu to the front end to print out. So the, the front end is in charge of all that interaction. It is a REST API that we have built out. So not only is our UI consuming that that API, but we, that API is also available for other developers like our customers to be able to consume. So that's always an interesting uh, feat as well, you know, building an API that's going to be consumed by multiple resources. But um yeah, it's just been it's been great in terms of I, I feel like I'm going to be a little more well-rounded and it's actually like encouraging me a little like I, I want to learn more. So I have never worked with a company that has a Chrome extension before. I don't know if you've done that before, but that's like another aspect of the front end that I had no idea how that works. And so that that also has been an interesting uh, topic to learn. Oh, wow. That's, that sounds really interesting because the Chrome extension, would it be just something that... Uh would interact with HTML on an existing page or something or? 100%, you nailed it. So the idea here is that you can enable the Chrome extension to pick up phone numbers from an HTML page. And so really what the front end is doing is parsing out that HTML, locating those phone numbers so that we can import them into text us. And so I've never had the responsibility, honestly, like this is also my first uh, foray into even a mobile application. I'm very much used to just web application only. That's so cool. And is and so if I understand right, mobile falls under front end as well? It does. Okay. It does. 100%. Yep. 
So it's it's been really interesting. I think, you know, Text Us as a team is going to evolve over the next year. And so I'm just, you know, pretty proud of the fact that, you know, the, the two front-end developers and I have been working well so far. And so, you know, you know my ultimate goal is to be a well-rounded, you know, engineering lead and eventually become an engineering manager. And so, you know, this is all just great experience. Yeah, I think that's got to be one of the best ways to learn, right? Like, I mean, if you let me, I would hide in the back end my entire life, and I'd never learn anything useful from the front end. <laughs> but, but literally, you know, I don't. I'm trying to not go with the wind and the and the fads. But it does seem now for quite a while that Rails and um, Reactive or you know SPA support, like the JavaScripty front endy things, are not only getting great support, but it's becoming very common flow um, in the world of Rails. So being able to interact with what seems to be the, the modern way to use Rails every day has got to be great, right? Because you could be maintaining something that has a popular uh, stack from like 2011, but you know, it's good work, but it's not how things are being done on applications that are being spun up now. So that's that's got to be just all things, you know, uh, that stimulus, React, all that seems uh, to be quite grown in popularity, so that's wonderful. This episode of the 5x5 Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Scout APM. Scout APM is application performance monitoring designed to help Rails developers quickly find and fix performance issues without having to deal with the headache or overhead of enterprise platform feature bloat. With the developer-centric UI and tracing logic that ties bottlenecks to source code, Scout helps you quickly pinpoint and resolve performance concerns, like N plus one queries, slow database queries, and memory bloat, so you can spend less time debugging and more time building a great product. And with Scout's real-time alerting and weekly digest emails, you can rest easier knowing that Scout's on watch to help you resolve performance issues before your customers ever see them. Give Scout a try today with a free 14-day trial and experience firsthand why Rails developers worldwide call Scout their best friend. And as an added bonus for Ruby on Rails listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Learn more at scoutapm.com slash rubyonrails. Thank you to Scout APM for supporting the show. Agreed. And speaking of stimulus, I wanted to bring up a little bit of community drama that ultimately ended up in a good story. But did you follow along with the Ryan Bates Digital Ocean Saga? Yes, it just popped up on my Twitter out of nowhere. And the only thing I'll say is like, Ryan Bates does not tweet like in the last seven years, hardly except for like four times. So yeah, that uh, that was wild. Yeah, so basically to sum it up, it, it sounds like, so DigitalOcean promised Ryan Bates that he would be able to host Railscasts, which anybody who has ever written Rails has likely watched a Railscast, even though it's been quite some time since, you know, Ryan has added to it, and I don't think he has any plans on doing so. But um, DigitalOcean, basically, I don't know what happened on their end, but they started charging him for it. And so he put in many support tickets trying to rectify the situation, and they told him, hey, Hey, we're, we're working on it. Like, we know that you were given this credit. And in the meantime, he was just racking up all these overages. And like the overages were, it was quite expensive. I mean, Railscast does get like a decent amount of traffic. And so ultimately, you know, Ryan was kind of backed into a corner. And so he ended up moving Railscast to a different provider. Um, and this ended up being a hacker news thread that we'll, of course, include in the show notes. But um, to your point, Nick, there was a, a happy update that was on Twitter this morning. Yes, that uh, he. What was the amount? So, so he was. Uh, uh, there, there was 
donation given from DigitalOcean uh, to the open source entity of his choice, if, if I have that yeah, right? Yeah, $5,000 he was given in order to rectify the situation. Because honestly, you know, DigitalOcean, you know, unfortunately, you know, it might have been due to some accounting error or a customer service issue, but it, it did a lot of damage. Yeah. And uh, back to what we were talking about, he donated it. Now, I didn't quite see if this was exact, like if it was done via GitHub support, you know, like where you support open source, Mm -hmm. but he chose to give it to Stimulus Reflex, which uh, really interested me because it just seems to be popping up more and more in in the news feeds, right? Uh, I don't know if you saw a couple of weeks ago, Obi Fernandez um, had a big whole thing, uh, you know, multi-page, Twitter thread write up about it. Um, the, our friends at Remote Ruby have been beating the drum for Stimulus Reflex for, for quite a long time. So it seems that this is another surge in that direction. I agree. The The last episode I just published on the podcast, which would have been actually this morning, was an episode about Phoenix Live View. And I honestly think Stimulus Reflex is as close as we're going to get to that right now. And I think they're doing amazing work with it. So I agree. Um, Hopsoft and, you know, that whole team that's putting that together is incredible. And so I was really excited to see Ryan choose to reinvest that money into the community. That's absolutely wonderful. And I'll plant my flag here. Uh, next time we have a catch up, I will have dipped my tone into the world of stimulus reflex and we'll share my experiences because it just seems that there's a lot of people I really respect uh, in there. And if you don't mind, um, it's been just long enough. You might have a few listeners who aren't who may not have heard of Ryan Bates. I know that sounds funny to us, but he, he was so prevalent and is just long enough ago. I might give a quick rundown um, just about him. So he. Well, I don't know when he started, but I know he he was prevalent with anybody who was doing Rails like bef- up till about 2014. He was the person that you would have watched, right? Like for screencasts or learning anything new about Rails, right? I think if he posted something, all the link lists like Peter Cooper and everything would he would have instantly been at the top, right? He was the the ubiquitous source, and then um, so much content put out, and he had a pro plan. For, for a number of years, um, and, and I think even uh, Go Rails and Drifting Ruby, you know, mention him a lot, is inspiring them for their screencasts. And he disappeared, um, I think in 2013, saying they needed to take a break for about something crazy like five years. And then one day appeared on Twitter saying, hey, you know, uh, the pro screencasts are now free. I'm okay, uh, I'm working now, you know, and that was it. So like, for me, you know, I'd check Ryan's Twitter like maybe twice a year to see if anything else popped up. Um, but yeah, just to have all of that, like like a dozen tweets in one evening and about this subject as well. It was wild. So I remember, so I was always watching Ryan's GitHub profile and then all of a sudden he made some sort of commit five years later into some sort of project. And I think he garnered like a ton of stars within like an hour because people were just so excited that Ryan was okay. <laughs> oh, I d- didn't know that. Yeah, I've never checked his uh, repo, but it's, it's, so it's it's one of those things where I was wondering if he's going to be like a, a why the lucky stuff where we just lost this amazing person in the community, and it sounds like he's he's there. Like he's not, you know, he's not generating out content multiple times a week like before. But fair enough. Like he was he was doing a lot of work, um, but it's good to see him back. And I'm I was also really pleased that he invested that in the community. 
Agreed. So, Nick, you said that you had a mystery topic to bring up today, so I'm very curious to hear what it is. Yes. Oh, good. Okay. So the mystery topic, I'm going to kind of like uh, ease into it. So do you remember the first episode we were on? Do you remember the number? Oh, it was uh, episode 245. That's right. Well, that's quick. I did not... I did not feed you that information ahead of time. So, um, yes. So, and I believe this is episode 348. So you probably marked it, uh, but you have you are now over the 100 uh, episode mark, at least while we're talking, uh, as host of the Ruby on Rails podcast. And I think that's something that's super awesome and really amazing. And in honor of you uh, being the uh, leading the charge for this long, I kind of had a look back onto the Ruby on Rails podcast and tried to pull up a few tidbits that I oh, thought would wow. be fun to share. <laughs> I'm so excited to hear this. <laughs> yes, please do. So, all right. And by the way, you're probably well over if you count co-hosting and all that, but I just thinking, okay, 245 you announced, right? Like mm-hmm. officially. Um, this podcast started when I was in high school. I didn't realize, I didn't remember the starting year. It was 2005. Um, when this podcast first came out. And I don't know if you, you remember what it was like, but there was that time where like podcasts first came out and they were super cool. I remember listening to them, you know, you had, they're kind of tacky. And then they seem to have had a renaissance in the last couple of years where like everybody I know listens to podcasts now and there's loads of podcasts all the time. But there was kind of that wave in 2005 and this seemed to, uh, to jump on it. Um, but so many podcasts we love to geek out on started years you know, most of a decade after this podcast started, uh, you know, like Bike Shed or even Ruby 5, which is no longer with us, you know, start years and years later. Um, and then I looked at the first few guests for the first few episodes, and it was it was crazy. So this is me doing my little Ruby history hat. Uh, DHH was episode one. Then you had Dave Thomas. <laughs> then you had Toby Look, uh, the CEO of uh, Shopify now. Uh, Chad Flow- Fowler, Jim Wyrick. Uh, there was a bootleg of a Why the Lucky Stiff concert uh, a few episodes in. And it just, just I am definitely going to spend some of my Thanksgiving weekend listening on some of these vintage episodes. Um, in 2009, it did go on a hiatus for five years. But I wasn't really aware of that because I got into Ruby big time in 2014. And that's why Same. I started listening. Yeah. Same. So to me, it was like, oh. This podcast has loads of episodes, and I'm listening to it now. So I always assumed that it just was always around, but it had that hiatus. And um, about 140 episodes in was when that hiatus happened. So looking and trying to figure out how it breaks down, there's roughly, I didn't do an exact count, 100 episodes with Sean Devine, or is it, I probably mispronounced his name there, his surname, but, uh, or Sean and Kyle, right? Like there's Sean, Sean, or Kyle around 100 episodes and I know Kyle came and said hi recently um and but we I'd have to do a formal count on that first 140 because I don't know how many times they changed host there for it was one but you are officially either at or close being the longest running host in the history of this podcast which is so cool that is wild to me (laughs) thanks I appreciate it I uh Yeah, I I can't believe it's been more than two years that I've been hosting the podcast. And, you know, sometimes, you know, I feel like I'm going to hit a wall where I'm like, am I saying interesting things? Am I bringing on interesting guests? Like, are people listening? And then I get these random tweets, Nick, where people are just like, I've listened to every episode or I really love this specific episode. And I'm like, oh, my God, 
this is totally worth it. Like, this is how I can stay in touch with the Ruby community because, you know, um, I don't blog a ton. I, you know, I don't do as much open source work as I'd like to, but like, this is my one thing. And so if I can keep this going and if I can bring on new guests that, you know, we hadn't heard from in this community, then it's all worth it. It's it's such a nice thing to have. Like you and I, you know, were listeners for years and years, and now you're at the helm, you know, bringing this out into the world. So you know the value that that you know, uh, not to gush a bit, but you know the value you're creating because you were a podcast consumer and lover, right? So you know that for, there's there might be somebody in South Dakota who doesn't have a Rubyist within you know 200 miles of them who really enjoys this community and this is like one of this would be one of their big touch points into the community and what's going on and you and I I know that because I've been that person in Montana or in you know Cornwall England you know with nobody else to talk to or listen to about Ruby or Rails but I pop my headphones on and I felt like I was with it so it's it's a it's a really uh, neat thing and, and a great service and just want to say thank you so much for what you do Wow. Thank you so much for looking back at that, Nick. I really appreciate it. I think that is probably an excellent place to wrap it up. It is so great to get to talk to you, and I'm going to hold it to you. Next time you come on for your quarterly update, we are going to talk about Simulus Reflex. That's a deal. Awesome. Bye, Nick. Bye. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 network. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review, and thank you for listening.